0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips. As we record this, it's week 10 of Shelter-in-Place here in California, four months since the first confirmed case of COVID-19, and the death toll from this cataclysmic pandemic is approaching 100,000 people in the United States. The New York Times devoted its entire front page on Sunday, May 24th listing out the names of a thousand of the people who've died. There's nothing else on the front page, just the headline and a thousand names of people with one-sentence bios. And yet, although there is no effective treatment or vaccine for the virus, insufficient testing and tracing capacity, and at best, a patchwork system in the states for how to fight the virus, and also no leadership from the White House and actually the opposite of leadership, active efforts to spread disinformation, confuse people to make the crisis look less bad. So despite all of that, we're nonetheless reopening as a country. While the scale and pace of reopening varies by state, even the states that have been the most aggressive, responsible and guided by science facts and concern for public health are also reopening. So we're definitely entering a new phase of this fight and there's tremendous uncertainty ahead about how to do this safely, how to prevent a new surge of cases, and how each of us as individuals stays safe. One thing is not uncertain is that we are facing an economic catastrophe, the likes of which we haven't experienced since the Great Depression in 1929. The dislocation and transformation of our economy and society will be widespread and likely last for years. The efforts to respond to this economic pain and suffering are also revealing a great deal about who we are and what we value as a society. And what we do from here can shape U.S. policy and politics for decades to come. So this is a moment for rethinking and redefining how we relate to people who are struggling economically and what kinds of systems and policies are necessary for the coming era. So those are the questions we're going to dive into today. And for that conversation, I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. I feel like you're uh, my barometer for f- how families with children are navigating this crisis and the extended stay-at-home reality. How are you guys holding up thus far?
1: Hey, Steve. We're doing okay overall, and it's all relative, really. I'm very clear that we're more like a barometer for certain families in this country, that we're really part of a privileged group, and I always try to remind myself that when I'm feeling really frustrated, because uh, it's easy to feel frustrated, but it's easy also to forget that for our family, we're really lucky. Both my husband and I, we still have our jobs. And as a family, we really have everything we need, including, yes, the internet. I'm going to make like a shrine shrine to the internet. Because of the internet, I haven't killed anybody yet. (laughs) A, it keeps them busy. It keeps me busy. And also been pretty careful all all along and not really getting food outside our house. We cook all our meals, but we do treat ourselves every two weeks. We go to our favorite pizza place, Joya's in North Berkeley. We get like two huge pies Mm. and we freeze the slices and that's our treat and it helps us get by better. (laughs)
0: That's great.
1: Yeah. And the one thing that's definitely challenging is that Just when you feel like you figured one thing out, there's a new thing. So, for example, we finally are getting to a place of settling into life with distance learning and homeschooling Mm -hmm. and with both of us working from home. And now we're facing the summer, which a lot of families are having to face, too, which is summer in a pandemic. So my daughter's school district just announced with an email a few days ago that said, oh, hey, guess what, parents? You thought the school year, there was still three more weeks to go. Well, we've decided to end it a week early, which means in two weeks it's going to be summer and all the summer camps that we had signed up for are not happening and it's almost like the district was like you know what they're all your suckers (laughs) so so parents we're all on these text threads kind of figuring out like what are we going to do this summer some families are thinking about doing camping trips and even traveling but we've been really cautious we still don't touch the mail like we kick it through the door we let it sit for a few days. So I think we'll probably just continue to play it safe and sit in our very hot house that has no cooling system in the summer and just duke it out. How about you? I wanted to check on, on you and your family. I know you had a family health scare just recently, right?
0: Yeah, we did. I'll talk, talk about that um, briefly in a second. You're mentioning about not touching the mail. I have a friend <laughs> who's, um, well, I won't I won't out her, but she is a you know not unfamous actress, actually. She would put her newspaper in the microwave oven to try to microwave off the virus. And of course it caught fire. I was going to say that's more
1: dangerous than probably touching it.
0: Exactly. yeah no so we're i mean fortunately things are okay with us we had a big scare on on saturday we Had a family member who had a, a scary fall and so we wound up spending seven hours in the emergency room at the hospital and it was really the whole scene was quite surreal it's almost like from a dystopian movie I mean, we were trying to drive into the emergency room parking lot and the guard came you know rushing out of the booth wearing her mask with her hand up you can't go in and, and you know explained that we were need <laughs> to go in because we had to to see the doctors and then and then when you go into the emergency room, there's a metal detector. They wand you um, when you go in, terms of the whole safety piece. And you can't stay with your family member, and so you check them in, but then you have to leave. And then every three seats are caped off, so you can't sit that on them. So only, you can only sit one of every four seats in the emergency room. So they're enforcing the the you know the physical distancing there as well. So, so I'm glad they're taking it so seriously, but just the whole experience was just really quite surreal.
1: Yeah, I bet. That's- That does sound pretty surreal, although I'm really glad to hear, since I have not had to luckily so far go to a medical facility or ER, just glad to know that they're doing everything they can to keep their workers safe, the patients safe, the families safe. And I'm also just really glad to hear that things ended up okay. So with that, let's turn to our focus for today's episode. Steve, you and I were talking earlier this week, and you had said this crisis and the responses have revealed two big truths about our country and our society, one good and one not good at all. So can you tell us about what these two truths are?
0: Yeah, so as I've been trying to like process and wrap my head around the dizzying speed of the spread of the disease, it's the destruction that's leaving in its wake, and also the responses, I was first struck and noted right the racial disparities of how this was playing out we talked about it some on the podcast with ron brownstein and i was worried about the lack of empathy Across racial and class lines, right? And especially as it became clear to the public at large that this was disproportionately affecting people of color, right? There was a piece in the Washington Post, the writer Stephanie McCrumlin, who went down to Atlanta when they were reopening in Georgia. She went to a wealthy suburb of Atlanta to talk to people who were going back out to bars and restaurants. And she asked one of the people there, Aren't you afraid? And this person's response says, When you start seeing where the cases are coming from and the demographics, I'm not worried. So there's definitely a profound racial and class dichotomy in all of this, as there is in everything in this country, right? But when I took a step back, I noticed that there's actually also something quite hopeful and promising taking place. And that is that there's been an outpouring of human generosity and also political support for taking care of people, all people across the entire racial and economic spectrum. And so, even despite the scattered protests against the shelter-in-place orders and whatnot that we discussed previously, the Michigan Lieutenant Governor Carolyn Gilchrist on our previous podcast, despite that, that is a small minority of people. And the vast majority of people in the country are making sacrifices, being understanding, and trying to help. And if that attitude is translated to meaningful political support, right? In one week, Congress passed a $2 trillion package of relief, giving... Just straight out cashed more than 150 million people in the country, and and also making very significant increases in extending unemployment benefits that uh, we'll talk about a little bit more uh, for people who've lost their jobs. Right, and just to put that in, in scale, that somebody tweeted out when that happened um, that they're like, oh, I guess we could have afforded reparations. And then I went and actually Googled right the promise of reparations goes back to post Civil War, 40 acres and a mule promised to uh, freed slaves. And somebody calculated out that it was about uh, slightly under $3 trillion in president dollars. And we just handed out $2 trillion in relief. So it's that when you have the political will, this country is able to do something. And the, the the hopeful part is that we had that will, and it was about designed to actually meet the needs of people who were in need. And so I think there's a lot to work with there. Right? I mean, Obama, when he was running, he used to talk about the fundamental decency of the American people. And I would say the people in general, and that we are seeing that we have seen that. And I think that's been the overall hallmark of the response thus far to the to the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I think you're right and it's a good reminder. It's I think it's so easy during these times, especially those of us who are news junkies and social media junkies to just focus on what we read and how many stories seem to be focused on how ultimately it's just if some people are treating other people horribly during this time. So it's easy to just focus on that and just feel like man, people are just terrible. But it is really good to remember that The truth is, most people, I do believe, are trying to be decent human beings right now, trying to do the right thing. I have some friends who are doing incredible, going above and beyond with protective masks, not just creation, but shipping and delivering to vulnerable communities around the country and really going above and beyond. So it's good to keep all of that in mind. With that, what's the bad news?
0: (laughs) Yes, can't all be good news in this world. And it's not, it's not new bad news, right? But I think it's, as I began to really try to reflect about and think about how to make sense of it all, it did actually really, I think, goes to the core of a lot of our society and even, you know, who we are as a, as a country and as a people. And and what's become much clearer to me, so i dug into this more, is how much of our society, our social contract, and our public policies – are based on an incorrect, adversarial, and frankly, hostile understanding of why inequality exists, and specifically, why people are unemployed and why people are poor. And so the crisis is bringing that into stark relief, because obviously, many, many more people are now unemployed. 40 million people filed for unemployment in the past two months, more than any time since the Great Depression. And clearly, that's, you know, calling the law an act of God, right, so to speak, is this something... External happened that all these people are now needing in need of assistance, and what we're seeing is that our system is not set up to properly handle this reality. In fact, I didn't know a ton about the unemployment insurance system until I started to analyze it more and dig into it more, and that what's come clear is that the reason it's not set up to handle this volume and scale of unemployed people is because the system is built on the belief that people are poor because of personal failings and that their inferior moral character will lead them to try to cheat the system to get undeserved public benefits. And so we've created this system more focused on trying to prevent fraud and catch people cheating than it is focused on trying to help people in need. And so then if that's the undergirding of this system, then when you get 40 million people suddenly in need, the whole system buckles. And that's what we're actually seeing. And I think if you step back from a a societal standpoint in terms of the kind of world we want to create, the country we want to to live in, this mindset of blaming poor people for being in poverty is in conflict with that spirit of generosity that I was just talking about. And so this anything that this crisis is bringing into stark relief, it's gonna be this contradiction in terms of the mindset that poverty is the fault of people in poverty. And then the reality of 40 million people now on um, unemployment, and it's the way that it's clearly not their fault. And so this creates profound questions in terms of what do we need to do? Because currently the system as it is is inadequate. And we're also in this election year. So what kind of society are we when it comes to caring for people in need? What kind of system do we need to help people? And are we going to elect leaders who are focused on helping people or on blaming them for needing help?
1: Okay, so those are some great questions and there's a lot there. Let's unpack that and look at those more closely. Let's first look at the current system, then at how it got this way, and then what we can do about it. And I thought we would start with looking at the current system and how ultimately jacked up it is, Mm -hmm. how broken and, as you said, ill-equipped it is to handle anything beyond what it has been e- either used to or set as a bar. So for our listeners, I wanted to share, because everybody might not understand how the system works, uh, like you said, you've been doing research. Up until I hadn't really understood how it worked up until now, either. like You feel that like you have a general sense, and some of us have had experiences with the system, but I thought we would share some further background, first with this clip from CNBC, that does explain the creation of the system and the structure of the unemployment insurance system.
0: The federal state unemployment insurance program in the United States was created by the Social Security Act of 1935 during the Great Depression. Suddenly you had millions and millions of people uh, who didn't have the means to take care of themselves and take care of their families. Um, And the aggregate impact of that on the economy was tremendously negative. The unemployment system is set up as a partnership between the federal government and the states in order to provide temporary financial aid to certain workers. It's an old joke in the uh, social policy and unemployment insurance space that we don't really have one unemployment insurance system. We have a collection of 50 different unemployment insurance systems. And and what kinds of benefits you get and and how easy it is for you to access those benefits is going to look very different uh, depending on whether or not you're in California or in Florida, for example. Most states offer unemployment for a maximum of 26 weeks while workers look for new jobs, but there are several states that make the maximum period either longer or shorter. Federal law sets the general criteria that workers must meet in order to receive benefits. Across all states, beneficiaries must have lost a job through no fault of their own, be able to work and are actively seeking work, and have earned at least a certain amount of money prior to becoming unemployed.
1: So that's how the system was designed. And now I'm going to share a clip from PBS NewsHour that explains how the system is working or not working. And that's been since the pandemic. I am one of the lucky few that I got through to unemployment on Monday after 389 calling attempts. Every time I hit the green button, I made a tally mark. And from what I hear, that's a success story.
0: (laughs) But successfully filing is another matter entirely
1: you need to stipulate each employer their uh, federal employee identification number and your last day of working. As a gig worker, I had, I think, 11 employers in the last 18 months. But for the work I did this quarter, I haven't gotten any paperwork from them yet, because it's not the end of the year. I don't know if I've been approved. I don't know if I'm eligible. I don't know how much I'll be getting or when, if at all. So that's amazing, 389 calling attempts. And that's considered success, according to that woman who we just heard from.
0: Yeah, that was like mind-boggling, right? And, that, and even in that situation, even if the system were to work at its full capacity, it's only set up to provide people a maximum of 50% of what they were making before losing their job. And so in terms of being able to weather economic calamity, it's also not set up in that regard. So,
1: and keeping in mind that a lot of people who even were making their 100 percent income were barely getting by. Exactly.
0: So clearly, this system is broken and inadequate. And the and, and the reason it's broken and inadequate is because of this incorrect and adversarial understanding of why people are struggling economically. And that's the thing that's really coming to light for me as I've begun to dig into what is going on and what the different solutions are.
1: Okay, so with that, we're, let's turn now to understanding this incorrect analysis. What is, per your definition, the incorrect analysis, and where does it come from, where did it come from?
0: Yeah, I was thinking on the way, and as we were preparing for this, that we had this chant when we were student activists, and we were fighting for more diverse faculty at in college, and it was teachers like me I don't see, we need more black faculty, right? Very cool. (laughs) Yes. So that came to mind because I feel that's how people look at unemployment and poverty. People like me, I don't see. Mm -hmm. And so the essence of this, you know, analysis that's out there, if you can call it that, I mean, really it's more of a worldview, is to blame the poor for being poor. And that the reason people are in poverty has nothing to do with macroeconomic forces, discrimination, or other societal influences. And it holds that poverty is the result of character defects, laziness, lack of discipline, trying to scam the system. That's That's that, you know, get a job, people say so, you know, pejoratively to people. And so that worldview is what guided the creation of an unemployment system that makes people jump through so many different hoops. Because the premise is that people are actually trying to scam the system rather than trying to get the help that they need to be able to take care of themselves and their family. And so just where it comes from, right? So this worldview took over our government and public policy apparatus when Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980. And so, and I mean, I came of age under Reagan's presidency, right? We actually had a song and dance routine that my friend Keith Archer let it this was back in the Ghostbuster days I was in college. Is called uh, Reagan Busters. And we would go a different political route. We performed for Walter Mondale, actually, before he spoke at an event. So there's, you know, Keith would sing. I was one of the dancers. Unemployment is up. They blame it on us. Who are you going to call Reagan Busters? So okay, Okay. It. hold
1: up. Wait a sec. Wait, <laughs> wait up. <laughs> First of all, all of this is amazing. And also picturing you singing to this, there's probably not video. Is there video?
0: That's a good question. There once was video. If I you lived, if you were like time.
1: a millennial now or a young person now, there'd be video. And I'm gonna hold you to it. Let's look for the video and play it one day. That sounds it awesome. Probably
0: is out there. Well, <laughs> you gotta bring culture to your politics, right? So, but that was a formative experience. We were in college, and in terms of really so understanding the realities of what Reagan represented was very much part of my formative years. I saw firsthand how he demonized poor people, right? And he created this caricature of the welfare queen driving a Cadillac while being on welfare and public assistance. And that was core to his brand In politics, and then he won in 1980. We went from a war on poverty under LBJ to a war on the poor under Reagan. And that mindset and attitude has been continuing for the past 40 years to this day.
1: Yeah, you're right. And I actually, I came of age around Reagan era too. I'm a bit in denial about it, but I know I totally remember and how deeply embedded in the um, essentially American mindset and narrative and consciousness, that image and story of the welfare queen became. And I just think a a lot of people today don't necessarily appreciate just how hostile Reagan was to people of color and poor people and how that became, thanks to him and his administration, essentially kind of synonymous, especially for brown and black people, it became synonymous with poor people and all the negative stereotypes. So James Baldwin, by the way, wrote a column for The Nation back in 1980 when Reagan was running for president. And he distilled the essence of what's become the Reagan legacy in that piece, and I wanted to share a bit of that. He wrote, I lived in California when Ronald Reagan was governor, and that was a very ugly time. What I really found unspeakable about the man was his contempt, his brutal contempt for the poor. And in terms of that welfare queen stereotype, the author Josh Levin wrote a book called The New Queen, where he dove into the roots of where that whole narrative and image and story came from and how Reagan used it. Here's a clip from the PBS NewsHour with Levin that I'm going to share. We can hear him talk about it. In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, social security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax-free cash income Alone has been running $150,000 a year. And he didn't say the phrase welfare queen in his
0: speeches, but there was such baggage attached to welfare at that point that I think the electorate really understood what he was saying and really knew what he was talking about. And it's important to realize that it wasn't just Reagan, Bill Clinton in 1992. Ran on a promise to quote end welfare as we know it. That was core to his messaging in terms of how he was trying to appeal to the electorate, and then he followed through on that right when he became president. Right, he crafted and passed and signed the 1996 welfare reform law that further codified this adversarial relationship to poor people. And distinctly remember one of his top advisors, Peter Edelman, is married to uh, Marion Red Edelman, created the Children's Defense Fund. Peter Elman resigned his position. He was an advisor to President Clinton, and he resigned in protest after that uh, welfare reform law was passed.
1: Yes, those are just things that tend to get lost in history, but uh, we we remember. <laughs> so we've had bipartisan support, by the way, over many years, as we've just you know talked about for blaming poor people for their poverty. And do you think that the new reality brought about by the pandemic can change this thinking?
0: Well, that's the challenge and the opportunity, right, of this moment in history, right? And that, you know, this, this is a time for rebuilding and rethinking how we help people in need, and that implicates how we think about people in need. And that as we take on that process, it can lead to a more profound and lasting transformation of our society and public policies, and also in the context of this is happening in election year, Right. So people forget that when Obama and Biden came in, in 08, 09, that was then the worst economic crisis since the depression. And though now that's going to look like a bump in the road. But at that moment, there was this opportunity to start to look at, and that's when the Elizabeth Warren uh, was tasked to create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, was in that context. So these crises demand large responses, and that's one of what we can be and should be pushing for now. And that the fact that we have these 40 million people and probably going to get more than that for whom it is clearly absolutely not their fault that they're unemployed, but the system doesn't work. That creates that opportunity for us to try to look at redesigning and building a different, more humane and more constructive system. And we don't have to have a system that's primarily predicated on trying to catch people from cheating or gaming the system or getting away with undeserved benefits
1: right but steve you and i know that already there's evidence that republicans are already moving in that direction unfortunately i'm going to share here a clip of uh, mitch mcconnell
0: well the problem was by paying people more not to work than to work it's making it difficult to get people back to work you can understand that Uh, WE DO NEED TO CONTINUE UNEMPLOYMENT INSURANCE. IT'S EXTREMELY IMPORTANT AT A TIME LIKE THIS. BUT TO PAY PEOPLE MORE NOT TO WORK THAN TO WORK DOESN'T ENCOURAGE uh, RESUMING YOUR JOB. AND THAT WILL END IN JULY. AND WE THINK THAT IN ORDER TO CREATE JOBS, WE NEED TO INCENTIVIZE PEOPLE TO GO BACK TO WORK, NOT ENCOURAGE THEM TO STAY HOME. Yeah, and so that view that people are unduly benefiting, and it was bad enough to hear McConnell, this, but this week was also in the Washington Post. There's an editorial talking about the unintended consequences of the unemployment benefits. So what it is, right, there's an additional $600 a week is being provided on top of the state unemployment, and that's being extended through July 31st. And that's because the Democrats and Chuck Schumer then fought to get that included in that first relief package. The Republicans resisted that at the time. So, But this mindset is so profound in terms of you see it's still there and people really don't know how to you know, wean themselves off of it. But it's going to quickly come into conflict with and is frankly going to collapse under the weight of 40 million people who are thrown out of work because of a virus.
1: Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to wrap my head around is I think we are definitely in a time where it's hard to dispute that these current 40 million are not to blame for their current predicament because it's pandemic related. And the 40 million span a very wide spectrum of people across class and race. Seems like everybody, if they themselves have not become unemployed during this period, no people, friends and family who have become unemployed. But my concern and question is what's to stop us as a society From returning to the previous belief that other people, specifically poor people, that they are personally to blame for being poor,
0: and that's definitely going to be part of the challenge, right? And there was, there's actually was a piece in the Atlantic recently, kind of foreshadowing this, that there's you know this moment, but then that moment will fade, and this is also right in the context of a long history in this country going back 400 years, as Nicole Hannah Jones outlined in the New York Times 1619 project, but. I do feel like that this current crisis and the rebuilding that are going to be required present a different opportunity, and that is because of it happening in an election year, and that that's where you lay out your fundamental values and your fundamental vision. And I think those of us who are advocates and organizers and activists have the opportunity to make broader arguments and connect the dots for people, right? So one dot is 40 million people unemployed um, through no fault of their own. But then can we start to then connect dots, as you're saying, to the other groupings of people who are dealing with economic challenges and economic difficulties most dramatically in terms of the longstanding racial wealth gap in this country. And then when you connect all those dots, you really start to then present a picture that shows that by and large, people being poor, being unemployed is a result of government action and public policy decisions throughout the course of this country's history.
1: Oh, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. (laughs) Didn't we try to make this argument in a book called Brown is the New White?
0: We did, it was not fully uh, taken to heart as we had hoped, although it's, you know, freedom is a constant struggle, so you keep at it, right? But did really did work hard to try to articulate this and, and to distill it in a way that people could grasp, right? So we have a chapter called What is Justice? And in that chapter, there's a section called, why do white people have all the money? And I tried to boil it down right to this sentence, right? It said, since the beginning of US history, people of color were placed in poverty as a group and kept in poverty by government sanctioned and government promoted policies. Conversely, whites were lifted up, privileged and protected as a group. So that was the distillation. And then as you tried to drive into me for 18 months, Give examples, give examples. That talk if you to,
1: don't succeed at first, try, try again. <laughs> yes.
0: So I it. We talked about how Africans sold into slavery, worked for free to create these huge economic fortunes. There's a whole you know, book about when cotton was king and the, how central that was to the rise of U.S. capitalism. We talked about Chinese workers, built the railroad that connected the country, facilitated coast-to-coast commerce, and then were literally driven out of the country by the Chinese Exclusion Act. And then what I didn't really know much about at all until I wrote the book is about the GI Bill, which was the post-World War II government largesse that in essence handed billions of dollars to white people to create the middle class, which is largely white. And so this racial wealth gap, there's a lot of empirical data showing how it was in fact the creation of government action which then if you can get there, you start to see then it's going to require government action to be able to redress it and move us more towards equality.
1: Right. And the challenge of that, of course, is that you throw on top of all of that ongoing modern day discrimination in employment and hiring and just implicit bias, which over the past few years I've really learned about. And I just feel like everybody should understand how implicit bias works so you know, bias isn't just something that people are conscious about, but so much of it is unconscious and how all of that creates a kind of vicious cycle, right?
0: Yeah. So that's actually super important is that people think it's like, well, you know, my relatives or I never held slaves or whatever. And so I don't have any responsibility for the, the racial wealth gap or the inequality. But implicit bias is ongoing every single day. And so, right, 87% of venture capital funding goes to white run companies. And then they've done these studies around all these major Silicon Valley companies and like how disproportionately white they are. And these things were created from scratch just over the past 10, 15 years. Right. So that's a reflection of implicit bias and its ongoing role in perpetuating the inequality in the racial wealth gap we have in the country.
1: Okay. lastly, let's talk about the politics of all of this these big progressive changes and the potential for these changes sound great in theory. <laughs> but in the presidential primaries, those candidates who were running on structural change, who were running on fighting for structural change, those candidates ultimately lost. So for our listeners out there, if, if I can just, you know, have you weigh in and share, what are the political prospects of advancing this kind of agenda?
0: So uh, yeah, a, f- a couple of things about that I think it's really important to understand. So one is that while the candidates, Warren and Sanders in particular, were defeated, their ideas were not. So even in South Carolina's primary, which is really what you know Sanders' Waterloo turned the tide for Biden, most voters in that election support Medicare for all. It's premised on this concept that health care is a human right and is very much in contrast to this notion that people who are in need should not get help. Warren was a big champion of the wealth tax, right? In the polling, it came out, two-thirds of the public support a wealth tax. The majority of Republicans, 53% of Republicans support a wealth tax. And there was even some headway on reparations, right? I mean, we're not there yet, but the level of support it's grown significantly from the early 2000s to earlier this year. And there's actually almost three times as much support um, started from a very small base, but still that there was, you know, progress in that regard. So you have that more fundamentally, right. As we, you know, laid out in the book and continue to try to make the argument explain to people a new American majority already exists in this country and is getting bigger every day. And which is, in fact, the underpinnings of the animus and the energy behind Trump supporters who are, you know, unhappy. We've covered this uh, extensively with Ron Brownstein around the Coalition of Transformation, Coalition of Restoration. But what people don't, I think, fully appreciate is that just how much the country has changed and what that means in terms of its political possibilities and ultimately policy possibilities. So... I went back and looked at the numbers recently. I went back and actually to confirm this. Obama would have lost to Reagan that the essence of the Obama coalition or the new American majorities, 80% of the voters of color, 39% of whites. If you took that percentage and you applied it to the 1980 and 1984 elections, Obama would have lost. The Democrat would have lost because there were not enough people of color in the country at the time. So that's an important piece to hold in mind. The level of destruction and disregard of this current administration can make us feel like they have more numerical support than they do. And with a party that is almost half people of color, to the Democrats, that's who bears the brunt of inequality, right? You're talking about the racial wealth gap, right? The average white family has 12 times the assets of the average black family, 10 times of the average Latino family, and even twice as much as the average Asian family, despite the stereotype, right, that Asians are all are doing so well. So you have all of that. You have these populations which are affected by this inequality and in whose in interest it's very much would work to be able to move this kind of an agenda. And there's always been a meaningful minority of whites. And that's, you know, too often disregarded. People continue to accuse me of not caring about white people. I continue to say I'm the biggest champion of progressive whites that there are, actually. But they've always been there, right, from uh, abolitionism all the way up to now. And so it's roughly 35 to 40 percent of whites are progressive. And so the composition of this country is different. And we should not be acting like we were back in the 1980s when we have a very different world that we're in now. And so on top of all of that, then you take this pandemic where there's 40 million more people who are affected by unemployment and 40 million more people who have relatives and friends and neighbors who have a different picture of unemployment. People like me, we don't see, but not right now they're actually going to. So all of that is, I think, very encouraging. And then lastly there's actually been some very promising and encouraging signs from Biden's campaign, believe it or not, that- I was um, gonna say, yay, <laughs> yeah, promising right. signs,
1: signs from Biden camp.
0: <laughs> but that they, they see the scale of this problem. And this word, I think we do benefit from, he, they have the experience, right? The Obama-Biden administration came in in the midst of an economic crisis and they did try to do significant responses to that. So they have some experience with that. But what's most you know surprising and, and encouraging is that they've actually- are thinking bold and are reaching out. reaching out to Bernie's people. They're creating these task forces to come up with solutions. And one of them, um, the climate one, is gonna be co-chaired by AOC. That starts to show to me that there really is the potential for the foundation to be laid, to dream big and plan big, to put in place the kind of systems and policy apparatus that is based upon a more accurate and more humane understanding of why people are hurting economically in the first place.
1: Yeah, that that is encouraging. And good news that we're hearing that the Biden camp is thinking big, that he's thinking big and crossing fingers that all plays out. So before we go, I quickly wanted to get your thoughts on two major news events from this week that have been weighing on me. And I know you and I have talked about it offline and there's A lot of discussions happening on social media. One was in Minnesota where the police again killed an unarmed black man, George Floyd. Uh, They put their knee on his neck and while he said he couldn't breathe, uh, they ignored him and he tragically died. And the other was the crazy situation in Central Park where a white woman called the cops on a black man who simply asked her to put her dog on a leash and she went cray-cray. She went racist cray-cray. Not entirely surprising, but it was a case where it got caught on video and so it became a story. And I wanted to hear what are your thoughts and takeaways on those news stories.
0: Yeah, so in terms of the... Minnesota situation and George Floyd. I mean, this will, you know, it's also coming on top of the Georgia shooting of Ahmad Arbery and the lack of... That's right. Mm -hmm. Right. The lack of police or district attorney response. They're just going to let those guys go who had killed them until that video came out. And frankly, that is one of the takeaways from both of these things, right, is that and somebody would put on Twitter, they were like, what percentage of these occurrences do you think these videos are capturing? Mm-hmm. Is it like 10%, 1%, 0.01%? But it, clearly, it's not, these are not the only things that are actually happening. But we I've, actually, I've thought
1: of that too. Plus, right. Steve, just real quickly, that what does it take that people need to believe? You even have video evidence in these right. cases, and many people still argue that some that they're seeing something else.
0: Right, right. So, you know, I think that for me, and we talked about this in terms of the Ahmad Arbery case, I mean, there's, just, there's also a certain weariness. And frankly, as an African-American man in this country, right? I mean, that I i told you about this experience when I was a freshman in college, 1983, Melvin Truss was a young black man who was killed by a uh, San Jose police officer, uh, Paul Ewing. And, you know, I was a young student activist at the time. We went over to East Palo Alto and we marched. Um, it was only like, you know, 15, 20 of us, we were trying to, you know, stand up. And I'll never forget Melvin Truss's mother coming up to me and thanking me and that stuck with me you know all these years and so I, I as i look at this i'm like that was almost 40 years ago yeah and then now we have this still happening on yeah. an ongoing basis so that's you have that the other thing that's interesting about this though is just somewhat tied to the video piece is that is the responses right And that then in, in minnesota they fired those three cops in a day whereas you contrast that with chicago where when laquan mcdonald was shot like 18 times and killed a few years ago they covered that up for over a year wow and then like, oh we're investigating or this and that so when they want to act they can act and that the fact that they did it's actually and that matters in terms of feeling like we're all in this country together and that the rules and the laws apply so that that does count and i and i think it's glad that they were fired and then are they going to go further in terms of further action? And then you see it, you know, it's also in terms of impacting public opinion, which is also part of the changing dynamics of our society, right? My basketball hero, LeBron James, right? That's, so it's also very interesting in con- not, to, not to get into the LeBron versus Michael Jordan uh, debate, but Jordan came of age in the 80s and 90s where athletes were not as political. LeBron put up on Instagram this photo juxtaposing a picture of this cop with his knee kneeling on the neck of George Floyd next to a picture of Colin Kaepernick, the football quarterback, kneeling in protest of police killing of unarmed black people.
1: Oh, so and it pow- says- So powerful, um, that image.
0: Right, and the run says, now do you understand, mm. right? And so people are using their platform for that, that's encouraging sign. This new reality we're in, there is all these, you know, there is all this video evidence, right? There's this book called, uh, Here Comes Everybody, and it talks about the impact of technological change on our society and on social change. And there's some statistic in there that like at one point, like whatever, 30 years ago, X percent of people in the world had a camera on them. Now it's like everybody has a camera because everybody has a cell phone, right? And so, so what that means in terms of, even back to Black Panthers, Black Panthers used to show up and watch the cops and try to hold them accountable when they were arresting somebody. But now we have cameras and cell phones and, you know, Facebook Live. So... It's created a different reality in that regard. And there are some good things that are coming out of that, including what happened in that crazy Central Park situation. So again, the power of video. So that's you know, another, one aspect of this. How quickly that woman knew how to weaponize race and the police was just fascinating. It's like she's yes. in the wrong. The, the Karen syndrome. Yes, she's in the wrong that she has her dog off leash in the area where it says you have to have them on leash. And she immediately says, I'm gonna call the police and tell them an African-American man is threatening me. And then she goes and calls and then she's not getting the quite response you can, you can tell. And then the third time when she's on the phone with them, her voice goes to this desperate plea of, the conveyed through her the tone and tenor of her voice, how threatened she is. So that, just that fact that she right, so knew I'm that.
1: So unbelievable. So.
0: There's this movie, um, this scary movie, I think, that the Wayans brothers did. It's a spoof on horror films. And you know, all these movies have, you know, very sexist and racist. This is, you know, it's, you know a white woman running through the forest and she's being chased by the bad guy. And she runs into this house. And then she goes to the computer. and She types, white woman in trouble. And then in 10 seconds, all these police are there after that whole thing happens. But the other fascinating thing about the Central Park piece, and let's around this, is they fired her in a day. And that, I think, is a very interesting situation. And it also, I think it's, it's a lesson that I think progressives and Democrats can take in terms of the power of calling out explicit racism. Is that There's even been studies showing that racism is most powerful when it's implicit, but that when you make it explicit, then the support for it dissipates. And so there is no... Justification. And essentially, no one's come to her attempt. She's not been on Fox News yet, at least. You haven't had the president rallying to her defense. The president who himself called for the execution of innocent black people in Central Park, right? Um, with the whole Central Park Five piece that David uh, Duvernay did the movie about. So, but they've not come to her defense because it's so explicit and it's indefensible. And so that's an interesting lesson to me as we think about how to combat racism is to not ignore it, but to drag it out into the light of day. And it's pretty encouraging that they were able to get her fired um, within like 48 hours.
1: Yes, that was definitely good to see and know.
0: All right. That's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. And you can also let them know. And we were very um, honored to be included in a list that uh, Bioneers put together of top nine independent podcasts to listen to. So thank them for that. And then you can share that with your friends and colleagues as well. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support for Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, stay safe, keep the faith.